Welcome, Luminous Writers, to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast. I am your host, author, and literary magazine editor, Rachel Thompson. This podcast explores how to write and share your brilliant writing with the world. In each episode, we delve into specifics on how to polish and prepare your writing for publication and the journey from emerging writer to published author. In this episode, I speak with Melly Walker about writing about grief and finding connection. We talk about our new joint venture project, the podcast called Writing Grief, and how she is writing grief. Melly reads a recently published essay, and I'll insert a content warning here since those with younger folks around them might want to use headphones for this subject matter, and those not able to listen to us talk, mainly indirectly, about childhood abuse and trauma might take a break this time if you need it. Listen to hear us talk about the difference between writing about trauma with an eye to publication versus writing about trauma to heal, and how to discern the two, and listen to get to know my co-host for the new Writing Grief podcast. Welcome to Write, Publish, and Shine, Melly Walker. Thanks for having me. So this is a bit of a different interview because at this point, you and I have spent a lot of time together and we recorded now 10 episodes of the Writing Grief podcast. By the time listeners hear this episode of Write, Publish, and Shine, episode one of Writing Grief will be out. Because of this, I know a lot of very specific things about a very specific slice of your life. And you're also a colleague of mine, community advocate for the writing community I host, Writerly Love. I also really love that we're going to get this different angle of conversation and hone in on parts of your writing life in this conversation. So before we talk more about writing grief, the podcast, and I get your side of why we did this thing in this format, I want to talk about bees. So can you tell our listeners about how working with bees and flowers keeps you here, as you've said before, I'm quoting from your website, and how it relates to writing? Yes. I have been bee-obsessed for a while now. I take a lot of pictures of flowers as well. Bees and flowers evolve together. Bees are like their ancestors, like a prehistoric wasp. And so every pollinator has a different shaped tongue to fit with different shapes of flowers. And so that to me has like a relational beauty that I really like. And I became a beekeeper almost a decade ago. I don't have my own bees right now, but I did do some beekeeping this summer. But beekeeping, just going inside honeybee hives really helped me slow down. And it's kind of a funny hobby to have for someone with anxiety to go into a a nest of buzzing insects. But they're so beautiful and they make decisions by consensus. You know, there's sort of the royal queen, the sort of colonial structure of how we perceive honeybees, but actually they're a lot more collaborative and act as one organism. And the queen is more there for scent and for guidance rather than as like a ruler. So there's lots of different ways to think about them in comparison to humans, but also they've really helped me feel more connected to the real world, which is nature. So yeah, they're really beautiful. You're our community advocate, as I mentioned, in the Writerly Love community, and you're so collaborative by nature too. So it seems like there's that inspiration in terms of writing communities also part of 
the bee community and like watching the bees, I guess, and learning from bees too? Yeah, we don't do anything alone as much as I'd like to sometimes. We do things together. I know when you talk about your work, your writing, you've said that you're seeking connection with you, the universal you, me, meaning yourself, you, Melly, <laughs> and the land. I'm sort of confused that quote, but I'm speaking in your voice there. So you, me, and the land. Tell me about the connection that comes from your practice of writing. I think, you know, we know a lot more now in terms of neuroscience or psychology or these areas that think about human behavior. And we have confirmation that we're all connected. We have confirmation that we're relational and that we don't do well on our own. And so as a person with depression and family history of depression, there's a tendency to want to isolate and it can be really easy to think in lonely and isolated ways. And so I think that connection is the antidote to that kind of difficulty. And so connection with readers as I write is really important to me. I guess really the thing that keeps me writing is knowing that at some point I will have some kind of shared connection with readers. And then just in terms of the land, I feel that all of the systems of nature, the way that, you know, trees and microorganisms and mycelium all work together in this symbiotic way is just a really nice living example for us. And, you know, I'm not obviously the first person to talk about that. I have lots of people that have taught me how to talk about that living and dead. And so I'm just, I'm just trying to live that and writing helps me keep that connection. That was great. I have a mantra that I use about my own writing and publishing timeline, especially when I'm feeling like I'm falling behind or having a hard day and particularly on hard days related to trauma and grief. So I will say in my own time, in my own way. And I know you live with chronic pain, depression, developmental trauma. How do you navigate that pushing forward that our culture has shaped us to bend towards with the truth of where you're at on a given day? That is a good phrase in my own time, in my own way. Well, I guess I am still navigating it all the time. I think I was very well trained in the way that I was raised in sort of the dominant middle-class aspiring culture to push and to progress and to be successful in a certain way. And I've had to unlearn a lot of that, but also recognize that that's kind of part of my conditioning. And so I'll probably always have to work on that kind of shame or deal with that guilt and try to tell the difference. But a lot of grief has come about because of chronic pain and like you say, depression and developmental trauma too, sometimes has felt like a major obstacle to writing and to completing things to the point that I can publish and share. And so I've had to think in slower time. I've had to learn about ableism from good teachers and how to have more self-compassion because it also makes me hard on other people. And so that's kind of an embarrassing thing to admit as well. 
that as soon as I'm thinking about what other people should be doing, I know that there's something going on with me and that's me saying that my need, I'm not meeting my own needs. So I don't know. I, I think I'm always dealing with it and I'm always reminding myself. And I think you're saying that you, you say to yourself is important. And I think probably from what I hear, a lot of people that live with chronic pain or neurodivergent folks who don't think in linear and progress, like who don't think of progress as being like a set of stairs going up, that time kind of swirls around, that there's all these ways of thinking and doing that are not necessarily modeled. But it's also very exciting to see how many people are talking about these different ways of thinking and being able to have words to describe like an experience that I know I've been having. And so that's a very good thing. But yeah, it is still come with a lot of grief. And I'm hearing in my voice right now that I sound very like calm about it. But yeah, sometimes sometimes there are very frustrating days. And that's just the way it is. So yeah, I feel that you write about tough things with an eye to publication. And I'm wondering how you know when you're on the scent of writing that can be shared and put out in the world. I know you recently published the creative nonfiction up on JMWW. And what steps did you take to prepare this work? It's a beautiful flash segmented essay before you sent it out into the world. Thank you. It's the kind of piece where I feel like I've been working on it for a long time in terms of the themes and even the scene of making bread. And I mean, I suppose I could say I divided it into different parts based on the act of baking bread and that that was something I just tried as an exercise or as a way of outlining the piece. But then when I tried it, I found I liked it. So I had that form of the steps of preparing bread. And I have to admit that part of me was also making use of the fact that bread making has been a popular hobby. And so there was kind of a part of me that thought, well, there's ways in which making bread can be wholesome and beautiful and wonderful and loving, and that there can also be this edge of fear and harm in a household where bread is made. And so I enjoyed that tension. And I also knew that that was going to help me with my theme of how parent-child relationships in which abuse is a factor are complicated in that way, that there's warmth and love and laughter and connection, and there is the more fearful and shame-driven behavior. It's making me think, too, that I mean, I called it a segmented essay, but it's a little bit of a hermit crab essay, I guess, too. So, you know, it's disguised in the form of the steps of, it's not really a recipe, but the steps of making bread. Did that help, you know, the hermit crab essay is often described as like that shell that kind of protects the writer a bit too. Did it feel that way as you wrote it or as you published it? Yeah, definitely. As I said, I started it as a way of outlining it. So if I were to break up these four steps to the, how bread was made in our house specifically. It did help me 
sort of hang the different sections on different hooks, so to speak. And then I kept it. Obviously, I had to change some things. I submitted it and had it rejected. And then when I went to revise it before submitting it again, I added the last line as a kind of F you. Like I was like annoyed. I was like, oh, well, what does this really mean? And something about that energy of feeling like, what is this actually about? When I use that last line to weave in the different steps, I kind of did it as a like, I don't know, a joke to myself maybe, or a way of playing even is probably a better word. But then it ended up making the whole thing make sense. And it brought the larger meaning, like the sort of like zoom out from the kitchen to the whole life and the impact. Originally, I was calling it imprints. And so the imprint of that experience being lifelong, even for such a simple scene in a kitchen, was what I wanted to get across. That last line in particular, it has a great impact on this reader anyway, me. I actually pulled it up. I'm wondering, would you mind reading it? It's a short piece and I don't want to put you on the spot because we didn't prepare this, but (laughs) would you mind reading it since we've discussed it like that? Sure, I can read it. Okay, so this is Bread Days as published on JMWW. Need. My dad cradles the dough in his giant hands. Flour scatters across the counter, covering the kitchen with the quiet of snow. As he folds, turns, and pushes the dough, I remember my own skin being pressed by his calloused fingers. Proof. He tucks the bundle into a bowl covered with linen. The gentle clink of the steel bowl on the bricks of the hearth rings in my chest. Fire crackles the yeast into being. When the pale wheat begins to brown in the oven and warm waves of sweetness fill the air, the stale knot in my stomach begins to soften. Bake. While we wait for the bread, he gets down on all fours. Sliding his knees along the red shag carpet, he becomes the hay monster, growling hey over and over as he lumbers along after me. When he catches me, I drop to the floor like a dead bug. All that tickling without a chance to breathe. I thought I liked it. Enjoy. Two bodies combined, we fill our bellies with warmth. Those tiny bites of fresh bread with butter and honey will stay with me for decades. I would rather remember how he handled the dough instead of the way he pressed his hands on me. For years, I've needed the truth, looking for the proof baked into my heart so that I could enjoy bread, sex, anything. I'll give you a moment to appreciate Melly Walker's reading as I interrupt our conversation to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Writing Grief. Writing Grief is a podcast for writers who want to transform loss into art. In each episode, my co-host Melly Walker and I discuss our own grief memoirs through the lens of craft and care for other grief writers. Our first episode is up now, and we have 10 weekly episodes coming your way in total. Subscribe now, and you can find us by searching for Writing Grief wherever you get your podcasts or on writinggrief.com. Now, we'll return to our conversation where we continue to discuss Melly's creative nonfiction work 
I guess I'm kind of hearing too the idea that like it's resonating with me in thinking about past interviews I've had too, the idea of writing around the trauma that I think it was actually Alicia Elliott brought that by way of Kinesia Lubrin, the author and editor who I haven't had on the podcast before, but who I've met and appreciate her writing as well. Particularly appreciate that sentiment. It's like, okay, I don't have to describe exactly what happened, but I can hint to it and creates that emotional impact for the reader, which I guess I'm wondering, obviously that's an important aspect though too, is that it has to connect with the reader when you're writing to be published in this way. And we talk about this a lot in one of our episodes of Writing Grief. We talk about what's the difference between writing to process trauma versus writing to be published. The question is, I guess, can you speak to that idea a little bit and maybe even through the lens of this piece? Sure. And I'm also realizing that one of your previous questions asked how did I know it was maybe ready to share, I think was sort of what you were asking. So I think definitely writers like Kinesia Lubrin with that quote, and I also think of Roxane Gay, who we talked about in a few of our episodes, but writing about trauma and the idea that we don't need to write the worst events or the, the details And I think anyone who's had trauma and specific events that they can remember or ongoing events knows what that means. So I hope that's clear to everyone, but to not have to write the worst part, basically, to not have to write the details of what happened, because it also fits with the experience of it, in my opinion. It's the impact and the sort of fallout how those experiences affected me for years. And that's what that last line is saying is that days like this and everything that's going on sort of underneath and unsaid and unspoken in those scenes anyways is still affecting me and has imprinted itself on me and has affected the way I see the world. And so I think that it's really important to write about how we've been impacted by difficult things. And I think that some people need to write the details of what happened for themselves so that they know as part of maybe a truth-telling or as part of therapy or, you know, obviously in safe ways. But I actually don't think that that's necessary to write the details I think that for me, the reason why I've had to do that in the past is as a way of explaining it, as a way of knowing that it's true, what I remember, what I experienced. I think that that's why we do healing work, whatever that looks like, so that we can believe ourselves, so that we can believe our own truth. And then the writing that we share, I think distance is a good good word, whether it's time or therapy It's not estrangement. It's not being unfeeling or disconnected from your knowing. It's having had your mind change even or to say, you know, I've said this before, but like I used to feel this and now I feel this. When you can start to write about things that are hard and you have different feelings about it or your sort of meaning making about it shifts, changes, grows, That's how I know I'm getting closer to being able to share it. This 
Peace Bread Days is the first time I'm sharing outright, even if it's hinted at, the abuse that I experienced as a child. And so it's very difficult to think about how that will be received. But for the most part, I feel comfortable with what's being shared. I have had enough distance to be able to create that piece and to say, this is what happened and this is how I've been impacted. And I feel that I'm safe to share that. And I feel that because I haven't written the details and I've made it into a scene with these undercurrents of difficulty or shame, that I'm not putting the reader in a position of them being unsafe. We started collaborating and have been busy bees with creating a podcast all about connection. Because I guess our connection is that we do our writing for connection. There's sort of layers, I guess, to that too. So can we talk about the podcast, Writing Grief? And I'm wondering if I can put you on the spot now to say, how do you define grief writers? Who are they and where are they at? It's something that I don't think we've made up this phrase of putting the words grief and writers together. I think that if you hear that, grief writers, and you feel like, oh, that might be me, then it's probably you. I think it's anyone who wants to write about grief, and it's a full experience, and it's a word that has a lot of meaning behind it. And so it's going to be maybe a bit different for everybody, but I I think grief writers, writers writing about grief are people that want to face those things and have almost a joy or desire about revealing that experience from their own perspective. It's about using our own experiences, our peak or definitive or transformative experiences as material for writing, but also because that material is something that we deeply want to understand. And we know that It might not be about flowers. (laughs) It might not just be about a nice day in a meadow with flowers, that any nice day in a meadow with flowers somewhere there is grief or sorrow kind of lurking. And maybe that's just my like haunted mind. But I think that the reason why I can appreciate flowers and meadows and bees and beauty is because I've also had to negotiate pain and how to live with pain. I just hope that people hear grief writers if they haven't already and feel a bit of excitement about being met and being seen and meeting other writers who will read the work that's difficult within reason and respectful boundaries. But I think they're everywhere. Yeah. I'm so excited about meeting those writers as well with that podcast. What was the most surprising thing for you? I mentioned we've produced 10 episodes already and we'll be releasing them over the next few months. What was the most surprising thing for you about producing the podcast so far? That we have done it. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I like about working with you, Rachel, is that you do the thing. And it's been so great to be 
working with you and to get momentum and to keep going, even though we were doing it sort of on the side and from our own creative or passion project, as it's sometimes called. And so I'm truly, I'm, I'm being a bit silly, but I am truly surprised that we've made a thing. One of my difficulties is finishing the thing. But in another way, it also feels very satisfying and rewarding and exciting to think about people listening, having their own reflections about their own meaning making and and how they're telling their own stories. Yeah, I'm someone who pushes sometimes to make the thing. But one of the things I liked about our relationship in this too is that there was a lot of intentionality and slowing down and being careful in terms of producing it. So we produced all the episodes in advance rather than kind of pushing ourselves into a rushed schedule. So yeah, it was a good collaboration. I'm wondering if anything also surprised you about the subject of grief in writing, like good or bad, as we kind of delved into those topics. I think it's more of realizing that There are just more people who are trying to understand writing about hard things than I really could perceive or guess at. And since we've been doing this on the side and, you know, we're not going on a big tour of promotion or anything like that, it it sort of tends to come up more casually in conversations with friends and family, but other writers And I find people are interested and intrigued and they kind of come a little closer. Whereas I think grief itself, like our personal experiences of grief, as we've talked about on the show, can sometimes repel people because of their natural fear to not want those things to happen to them, whether they mean to do that or not. And I think that... People are thinking about how to write their own stories, how to tell their own stories, and how to talk about those more poignant and difficult, sad things. So I've been surprised that, again and then again, not surprised because so many writers are writing about grief, but even so-called non-writers or people who I didn't know might like to write, I've told, and they are like, oh, really? So I'm curious to know if this inspires anyone to start even just journaling about their experiences. That would be so cool. Wonderful. What are you currently working on in your own writing, Millie? I am working on the memoir that I keep claiming I'm working on throughout this podcast that we made. (laughs) So I'm working on the thing and I'm in the stage of outlining the book length memoir. And I'm also enjoying writing flash or short creative nonfiction pieces. So I am revising some of those. I think I thought I would have more new material at this point, but also trying to appreciate the amount of work and meaning making that has gone into making the podcast and that that is also a part of my writing life. I come from theater and before this writing life, I also used to write plays and used to do some live storytelling. So I feel grateful for that experience and I also don't want to leave that behind. I really like hearing things aloud I like live storytelling. If we can 
do that again someday. And for now, we have the digital option. So I want to do more of that. And I actually, at some point, would like to record some stories as well, because there are some that I've written for being told aloud. And so at some point, I'd like to start doing more recording, too. That's a lot of things, but yeah. (laughs) That's great. You know, in this podcast, we often talk about lit mags, and you've already shared the story that you've published with JMWW. Where are you sending your writing currently, and what do you look for in lit mags before you submit your work? Honestly, I look at the list of editors. I look at the masthead. I like to see who's part of the lit mag. I like reading those bios. I mean, it's also a submission, part of the submission practice of deciding fit, too. So in folks' bios on lit mags, for example, or when I go and look at work that they've published, if I feel like they're open to grief writing or if I feel like they're open to stories that are difficult but important, then that makes me feel a little more safe about submitting to those lit mags. I think that that can be difficult because that means I'm making assumptions about those people. So obviously I'm doing other things like reading the work that has been published, trying to find similar pieces, so to speak, like that might deal with either similar issues or maybe have like a similar form. I think I do make some assessments based on how the submission guidelines are written. So if it seems like there's a level of care with the submission guidelines about how the work will be treated, is there justice there? Is there equity there in terms of how they're doing their calls for submissions, even if that doesn't include me? Are the submission guidelines exciting? Like, is a theme that calls me? I might write to that. Yeah. I'm still new to figuring out the lit mag landscape. I find I need to do a lot of looking and reading before I submit. It's worth the time and it's, you know, respectful to the work that lit mag makers do. Like, having worked in nonprofit arts before, I, I recognize that it's a lot of work. It's possibly underpaid. And I understand that that's a specific life that those folks are choosing. And I really appreciate that they're doing that work. And so I just want to be careful about whether I submit to them or not, because just respect for their time. Like it's it's kind of like when you've been a server in a restaurant, you know, to like <laughs> tip properly and not complain. I don't know. It's a, it's a thing. Yeah, it's more care that you're bringing in connection. So thank you for sharing that about your lit mag, you know, submission choices and also philosophy. We finish with a quick lit round with my guests these days. So I'm going to invite you to finish these sentences. The first is being a writer is ordinary, but magical. Literary magazines are important. Editing requires distance and self-reflection. Rejection for a writer means playing the odds and getting even closer to an acceptance. (laughs) And finally, writing community is everything. We don't do anything all alone and we need each other. Well, thanks so much, Melly, for being my guest here on this podcast today and also my collaborator on the Writing Grief podcast. Maybe you can tell people where they can listen to Writing Grief. 
thank you for considering listening to Writing Grief. It's found everywhere you can get your podcast. The trailer is out now and episode one comes out soon. There's also a website, writinggrief.com where you can find all of our show notes. We've been keeping track of all of our little references. So if you're interested or curious about what you hear, you can go there. I hope you'll hit subscribe. I hope you'll tune in to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks. Thank you. So that was my conversation with Melly Walker. I'm sure by now you want to hear more from Melly. I know I love and really appreciate being in dialogue with her in our new podcast, Writing Grief. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and find out more about the pod and all the show notes on writinggrief.com. The Write, Publish, and Shine podcast is brought to you by me, Rachel Thompson. You can learn more about the work I do to help writers write, publish, and shine at rachelthompson.co. When you're there, sign up for my writerly love letters sent every other week and filled with support for your writing practice. If this episode encouraged you to write about grief and make connections with your writing, I would love to hear about it. You can tag me on social media. I'm at Rachel Thompson on Twitter or at Rachel Thompson author on Instagram. And tell other luminous writers about this episode, especially those luminous grief writers. You can do this by sending them to the podcast at rachelthompson.co slash podcast or searching for Write, Publish, and Shine wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you for listening, and I encourage you to keep writing about your grief and sharing and connecting with other writers. My guest spoke to me from the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, Swasson, and Musqueam nations in so-called Greater Vancouver, And I am a guest in the South Sinai, Egypt, on lands historically and presently occupied by the El Tirabin Bedouin. 